All right. Welcome, listeners, to this bonus episode of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sitman, your podcast co-host, and I'm here with my great friend, Sam Edler-Bell, and another friend of ours, Tim Shank. Welcome, Sam. Welcome, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I wanted to say to the listeners right off the bat that Tim has a special place in Know Your Enemy history, because I think... Oh, that's right. I don't know how many episodes into us starting the podcast, like what? Tim, like three or four? Yes, it was when I was working on this book, as a matter of fact. I remember sitting in the Library of Congress, like stumbling across the early episodes of Know Your Enemy. And you emailed us and said, I think this is really good. Can Descent help you out in any way? And we said, whatever you can do is helpful. We have no idea what we're doing. And uh, the partnership was born. I've been regretting it every day ever since. <laughs> it was a darkly faded decision, Tim, when you hitched our wagon to the Descent team. <laughs> We've been dragging Descent's august name through the mud all these years. Yeah, but apology accepted. At least I can finally move on. <laughs> well, Tim, we're not here to talk about the history of Know Your Enemy. We're here to talk about your excellent book, Realigners, Partisan Hacks, Political Visionaries, and the Struggle to Rule American Democracy. We both read it. I did the thing where I, I set out to just do the grad student gut, but I ended up reading basically every word, which is a credit to just how well-paced and well-written this book is. So congratulations on that, Tim. Thanks. It was really hard to do. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, I, I had the thought many times, like writing these kinds of big idea, popular history, potted biography, anybody can pick it up, but a, an expert would still get something out of it. It's really careful dance, which I think you executed. Yeah, it's sort of like the trying to do, put together the bee tree that you could give your aunt while at the same time <laughs> subtly engaging with Hannah Arendt. It's, it's a tricky, tricky balance. Yeah, and I enjoyed how much sort of subtle engagement there was in this book, like sort of subterranean themes that I hope that we'll be able to draw out of you in this conversation. Absolutely. I'll be much angrier and cruder uh, in speech than on the page. Well, let me echo that. Congrats on a very well-written book. Uh, thanks so much. Before we talk about it, who are you, Tim? Complicated question. <laughs> <laughs> we already mentioned that you're affiliated with Descent. You're its co-editor, but you're also a historian. And where are you at and what are you doing? Yeah, so The Descent co-editing is how I got to know you guys. The reason I have health insurance is that I'm an assistant professor of history at, at GW in D.C., and I'm a historian by training. I write mostly about American politics, sometimes about other stuff. But in the world of American politics, I'm most especially concerned about the relationship between ideas and power, tracking back and forth, like how those two work together and sometimes how they come apart. But it's a kind of old fashioned approach to political history in some ways. But I feel like at least over the last few years, I've had a lot of fun asking questions that very much come out of our moment and thinking about sort of the answers that you get when you look at the past from that perspective. I wanted to be a writer before I wanted to be a historian. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wanted to be a writer was because when I was a junior in high school, I picked up Nixon Agonistes by Gary Wills, <laughs> guy I know that you two have talked about oh, before. Oh, hey. Yeah, yeah. And for all the quibbles I would have about that book as a professional historian looking at it today, I just think it's an extraordinary work of journalism, work of prose, work of critical thought. I'm always looking for an excuse to teach it to undergrads. I kind of think they'd rebel against me if mm. I did. But there's, <laughs> I just think there's so much to learn there. And after that, a couple months later, I got my hands on another book, uh, The Age of Reform by Richard Hofstadter, which uh -huh. is just mm -hmm. another just spectacular work of mid-century history, yes, with an academic bent in some ways, but also reaching toward a popular general audience. And I think so much of my life, my intellectual life at least, looking backwards, is set between those two poles. And it's just something where I have 
maybe beyond all reason and justification, sort of romantic commitment to that ideal. And of course, you know, those are high standards to set for yourself. You always end up mm-hmm. failing them. But that's the sort of the tradition that I see myself trying to work in. That's so fascinating, Tim. I mean, it is so notable that both Wills and Hofstetter in those two books you mentioned, really just like peak political nonfiction prose. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's like I never did the sort of hardcore how I feel like the standard left journey would be sort of the hardcore Howard's in. All right, I've got the big picture and I'm going to like hold everyone up for judgment along the past. And listen, fantastic historians have come out of their tradition, but that's just never been my own orientation. Well, let's get into the book. I would be interested to hear like what your slate pitch for this book was and like how the idea for it took shape and, and then and, and how you kind of conceived of it as you started into it. Yeah. Well, it's useful to think about the original pitch of the book is a lot different than how I would describe what it became. And I think that reflects partly my own journey and maybe some broader lessons I think a lot of us have taken from the last few years of American politics. Because the original version coming off of the 2016 election, which for context, again, this gets into some know your enemy territory. In the months running up to 2016, the vote, I'd spent a lot of time doing a kind of prehistory of, on the one hand, the crisis of technocratic liberalism and the emergence of that style politics as embodied by Hillary Clinton. On the other, the intellectual origins of this populist right that was emerging. Spent a lot of time in the summer of 2016 reading James Burnham and Sam Francis. And yeah, I had a big piece that came out. And I so I had a couple of essays along these lines. I was talking with my agent about maybe turning them into a book. And he said, "I, I mean, I like the pieces, but who will care after Hillary's inaugurated? I'm like, fantastic point. Uh, (laughs) Moving on. And then the election happens the morning after we're talking. And my first impression coming out of that night was just that the boundaries of American politics were so much wider than I had imagined. I, I saw 2016 not just as a sign that something recent had snapped, but that there was a larger story here that I, at least as someone who had just a few months earlier gotten my PhD in American history, I I felt like I didn't know and I wanted to learn and I wanted to tell other people about it. So I thought the idea, going back to Hofstadter in a sense, was there are these iconic mid-century books, something like Hofstadter, the American political tradition, which tries to tell a story about the making of this thing and that clearly the world we're operating in, if those boundaries are so much larger than they looked in the age of Eisenhower, we need some story that can tell that. So that was the in the wake of Trump's election, reconceiving or taking another look at this longer American book tradition. That was where the book began. But as I started to work on it and to wrestle with it, I came to feel like this idea just that the boundaries were larger than I thought. Like Maybe that was true. Maybe it wasn't. But that it didn't give me enough juice for a book. I needed more of an argument. And as I was working, the sort of characters who I became most invested in, I sort of Sometimes, like almost against my will, like I originally was just Charles Sumner has a chapter of his own in the book. He was not mentioned at all in the proposal for the book. And I had just been, it's like, oh, I'll have some fun. I'll read the Sumner biography. I've always wanted to learn more about him. And the book really clicked for me when I realized that I had to write a chapter about Sumner. And the reason was that it felt to me that. At this time when so many people were talking about a crisis of democracy, whether that was seen as sort of in the centrist version, the need to defend norms and institutions against this populist threat, or on the left version, which I'm clearly more sympathetic to on a substantive perspective, the need to for pushing for a structural transformative reform that can provide meaningful answers to people who have real complaints with the status quo, that the thing that got left out of all this left-center battle over the crisis of democracy was just the bare fact of making a majority. And that came to seem to me 
a much more interesting subject than I'd realized, partly because of how novel it is when you see it from a historical perspective, partly because of how important it is providing legitimacy for a governing class, also for structuring what political parties actually care about when they get into power, saying the limits for what they're capable of doing. And so then the book as it emerged, weirdly, it was about trying to put American democracy, democracy in the sense of politics, making coalitions, making majorities, putting that definition of democracy back at our story about American democracy writ large. Mm. And with that in mind, I think it ended up giving me a different perspective, not just on American history as a whole, but on the crisis that we're facing now and where we might want to go next. So so in a sense, the sort of fixation on like democracy with a capital D and a bunch of shiny lights and fireworks behind it, that kind of like abstract concept of democracy, which became like for liberals, a kind of this imperiled thing that had to be saved. But exactly what did we mean by that? Because, you know, I mean, Trump did win an election. And then on the other hand, like, you know, even through the Bush years, you know, we had like, we were going to war for democracy, defending democracy abroad and at home. And what it sounds like you're saying in some degree is kind of that you're bringing democracy back down from the heavens and back to like, what does it actually entail? You know, it's just about building majorities. It's about coalitions, about it's about this grunt work. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, my dirty little secret is that I actually find a lot of those high-level discussions about democracy, the type that you get from political science discussing democratic theory, I find them just so boring. And, like, that doesn't mean that they're bad, <laughs> but it's just hard for me to get emotionally invested in them. Whereas I find the work of politics and the art of persuading people, building coalitions, I find that endlessly fascinating because it's always changing. That comes through in the book, Tim. I came to think of it as someone with my left-wing politics. You know, I call myself a democratic socialist. I think that means that socialism is the moral core of the project, but that democracy is an essential element too. And it's not just a means to an end, but something that's worthy in itself, that if we think of ourselves on the left as speaking for the working class, defending those interests, which I think we should, then that means taking the views and perspectives of ordinary people really, really seriously and recognizing Mm -hmm. that the public at large might not agree with you. And it's our obligation to persuade, to bring people on our side and to figure out ways that building this coalition can be not just a practical requirement for power, although I think it is, at least if your vision of politics is like as mine, like I really want to take money and power from rich people and give it to everyone else. <laughs> I feel like the best shot that we have is working through the state and the best chance of wielding state power is through having a stonking majority, but that there's also for the left a kind of moral imperative to take these questions more seriously than we have so far. Yeah. You know, someone who I came to kind of lay in the project, but who really gave me a vocabulary for thinking about this stuff was Stuart Hall, someone who was just like so preoccupied in his own lifetime with these questions of taking the right seriously on its own terms, figuring yeah. out how the left can mount a serious response. And his great book, um, The Long Hard Road to Renewal, he says, I think it came out in late 80s, maybe early 90s, that there are just so many ways in which the left hasn't advanced in our discussion of actually existing democracy, kind of where Gromsky left us in the 1930s. And I think right. that in some respects, it's still true today. And I, from just a Again, like a left perspective, I want the book to be part of an attempt to push that conversation forward. And 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 sort of in keeping with that kind of hard headed sense of moral obligation and practical necessity, I think, as you say at some point in the book, to build and wield majority power from the left. 
Stuart Hall's formulation of Marxism without guarantees sounds like something that you might abide by. But this is why I don't call myself a Marxist at the end of the day. Um, is that I think Marxism without guarantees, I kind of think it needs to have at least some guarantees in order to count as Marxism. <laughs> so I think of it as socialism without guarantees, that I have a commitment sure. to okay. the ethical project without having to yeah, pin down to any particular orthodoxy within it. Although, of course, you read Marx, you get enormous amount from the Marxist tradition generally. Well, Tim, building off some of what you said already, I wanted to just quote a line from the book early on that I thought for listeners might be a helpful definition of what you're up to. And you describe your book as a biography of American democracy told through its majorities and the people who made them. I thought that was one of the better one line kind of summaries of your project. But, you know, one of the things that I picked up in the book and even what you said so far is the sense of possibility, or at least taking the measure of possibilities, given that something else you say early on is that both Obama and Trump campaign on a political revolution they failed to deliver. Right. So it's the sense of like, well, what are the possibilities for constructing a majority capable of wielding power right now? It's kind of like you're offering both a, a different big picture story than some of the ones we've argued and talked a lot about these past few years, but also one that seems like more attentive to possibility rather than explaining the ways we're constrained and restrained. Yeah. And it honestly requires me to say that I don't think any one of us should have a knockdown guaranteed, here's my 100%, I am certain that this is the underlying cause answer for all this. So we also recognize that we're starting from a place of uncertainty. But with that in mind, I think it's helpful for us to be skeptical of explanations that just pin everything that's wrong with politics on factors that are beyond our control. You know, that might be true. But if something is beyond our control, that means that, well, Ultimately, there's nothing much that we can do about it. So it's a license for irresponsibility. And the way I try and balance this myself is saying that, listen, I want to understand the driving forces that help shape the world that we're living in with all of its problems. So what are those big structural imperatives? But you know, there are a lot of structures out there. Sometimes they run into each other. Sometimes they conflict. And sometimes that opens up the space for agency, for change, for individual choice. And maybe our margin of maneuver is small. But... If that's the case, then I think it's all the more important for us to understand the obstacles that we're facing and to do the best with the resources that we have. So having a really, really clear eye to the sense of constraints with the hope that we can push against them most effectively. I think, I think this is especially important for the left because we are, by our nature, committed to advocating on behalf of people who don't have power. You know, if you have money, if you have influence, gosh, I remember the C. Wright Mills line, um, prestige is a shadow of money and power. You know, the people with prestige, you know, they can afford to be stupid. They can afford to make mistakes. They can afford to delude themselves about the challenges that they face. I think our side, because of the people that we want to speak for and because of the ambition that we have, we can't afford those illusions. But we also can't afford to give up. Well, this kind of hope and realism, no illusions, but vision, this kind of like odd mix of qualities is something I see in the sort of characters you choose. I mean, the book is called Realigners. So it's about people who affect what we might call a realignment at different moments in American history. Obviously, they don't do it alone, and you're attentive to movement building and the organizations that they build and how it all works. But you have these sort of potted biographies of various people who you see as sort of embodying those qualities. Maybe it's sometimes it's two people, it's divided, you know, like Martin Van Buren is the brain of Jacksonian democracy and Jackson is the heart. But sometimes the, the qualities are this odd mix of realism and optimism and sort of low down grunt work, political machination and policy and uh, sort of moral vision. Sometimes they reside in one person. And I, I guess I wanted to 
just to turn to some of the content of the early part of the book, who are these people? And am I right to sort of see that there's this kind of echoing across the generations that you're seeing, that the people that you chose kind of embody this realigner personality and set of like capacities? Absolutely. And not everyone fits a profile exactly. It's It takes a weird and strange combination of, in a sense, both strengths and weaknesses. But the book really snapped into place for me when I came to see some sort of deep affinities between Charles Sumner, one of the founding members of the original Republican Party, someone who puts anti-slavery and anti-racism at the core of his politics and tries to bend American democracy as far as it can go in that direction in the 1860s. Some extraordinary achievements, among, like singly among them, the defeat of slavery by 1865, something that would have seemed basically inconceivable just a few years earlier, but also some massive failures along the way. The promise of that Reconstruction and the coming out of the Civil War, it dead ends by the 1880s in sort of the twin areas of Jim Crow and the Gilded Age. Not something that Sumner, that no one I think really would have wanted in 1865, but seeing a kinship between the politics that Sumner had, where it is balancing this long-term vision of using politics to change the country, this vision of structural transformation with this commitment to a kind of majoritarian politics, seeing an affinity between him and Phyllis Schlafly, a very different Mm. person on the other side, 100 years later, still within the Republican Party, but who had her own vision of transformative change through mobilizing a majority or at least electoral college certified majority behind her vision of taking back the country. Not a comparison that would have occurred to me before starting on the book, but once I began to think of them as uh, their very different ways, occupying some pretty similar space, that's when this larger image of a realigner really snapped together for me. Can we just, for the listener, define realignment? Yeah. What does it take to make a majority, not just the coalition that wins a single election, but a realigned block, you know, a kind of hegemonic order of things or coalition that that rules a certain era? Like, how did you define those things? There's a strong version of realignment theory, which is associated with some earlier political scientists, like most notably Walter Dean Burnham, who says that more or less every 30 years or so, American politics goes through this wrenching transformation where changes that should have taken place over 30 years get packed into maybe five. And that out of this transformation in politics, which is catching up the political system to larger changes in the social order that have taken place, a new majority emerges that allows one party to more or less set the terms of debate for a generation to come. Until 30 years later, there's another grand resorting. A really classic example of this kind of forgotten to history in some ways, but astonishing when you look at it and the sort of scope of it, the Republican coalition that emerges out of the 1890s. So before the 1890s, American politics, after the Civil War, into this 20 years period after, really, it's a period very much like our own, where the parties are very narrowly divided, ethnic divisions, questions about identity loom really large, and power is handed back more or less constantly from election to election. No one has a stable hold on power. And in the background of this is this extraordinary social transformation, which we think of today as the transition to industrial capitalism. The extraordinary thing that Republicans in the 1890s managed to pull off is not just breaking the deadlock in American politics and building majority that lasts more or less intact until the Great Depression, but making a majority coalition in the teeth of this grinding transition to industrial capitalism that draws a significant number of working class voters into a party that says what's good for business is good for America. 
And that sets the template for reconciling industrial capitalism for mass democracy, which really was an open question. Keep in mind, this is a time, 1890s, when socialist movements are really starting to feel themselves across the Atlantic. Yeah. That this sets out an alternative model that's going to resonate not just throughout American history, but throughout global history in the decades since. The capitalists looked on sort of the party that Mark Hanna built and thought, oh, thank God, <laughs> there's a solution. Yep, yep. And we might think that this was more or less inevitable, but not too long before that, if you're an elite New York capitalist, then you might just look at the South and see like, oh, man, like the ex-planter buddies, like the guys with mine down there, it like, seems like they're having a really good time defending their power just by taking away the vote from people, mostly black people, but a lot of like working class white people also lose out in this consolidation that happens in the 1890s. And there are moves to restrict the suffrage for working people in New York and other and outside the South as well. We don't remember it because it didn't right. work, but this sort of Jim Crow is the Southern expression of a national desire, at least in some elite fractions in this period. And again, the extraordinary thing that happens is it turns out that in order to defend capitalism, you don't need to do that. You can do it through this democratic means until, of course, the Great Depression comes along and cycles things again. So getting right. back to this question of realignment, that's a great example of it. Where I push away from the strong version of realignment theory, though, is this idea that there is necessarily one key moment, this transition that you go through, and it sets the majority that will dictate terms for a generation there's just a lot more change in fluidity from election cycle to election cycle than that. But what I do like about it, especially for today, is that we're in a moment where it's clear that for decades now, there has been no majority that's emerged. There's been predictions of a coming Republican majority since the 1960s. It's never really become this full-fledged successor, a full-fledged majority in the sense that Burnham would have for the early Republican Party or the New Deal coalition of the Great Depression and after. So that Republican majority has never come to pass. People have been predicting it, emerging Democratic majorities since the early 2000s. That too keeps receding into the distance. So we're back in this period where the parties are narrowly divided. It seems like no one's able to build that majority. On the other hand, we can see that the coalitions really are shifting, or at least that they have the capacity to change in ways that would have astonished, I think, anyone looking at how the parties described themselves a generation ago. So there are real shifts in how voters behave and that those changes they're not just important for understanding who wins and who loses elections, but that they have real meaningful consequences over policy in the world that we live in. I mean, and it should be said, realignment is a term on the lips of policy entrepreneurs and political leaders and intellectuals across the political spectrum. The amount that right wing, especially young right wing kind of Trumpist populist right wingers talk about realignment is incredible. And like, I think like 10 years ago, I mostly heard leftists talking about realignment. You know, the idea that there is the capacity, the possibility of rendering a democratic majority from what otherwise seem like really static partisan divisions, at least people feel like it could happen. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like both sides are divided on this. Like, Sam, I remember in your TNR profile of the sort of the new, the young new right crowd, something you pointed out was that a lot of them weren't as concerned in the first instance with winning elections. And I think that there is sort of social media politics encourages people to yeah. live in the space of the abstract debates, which are fun to have. You know, I, I like them too, but to almost treat the majority as something that will come along later. And I think that there really was this like moment, but said that like, listen, you know, why do people vote the way they do? Pretty much they're responding to how the economy is doing. Maybe if there's a war, that's going to be something that affects them. But voters, they follow the leader. They're not really shaping anything. You don't have to take public opinion that seriously. You know, leaders lead, they mold public opinion. They don't worry about following it. And 
I think that was a perspective that was in my mind too. when I had this, oh, the American boundaries of American politics are larger than I imagined. And one way in which I just changed my mind over the course of the book is I came to think like, yes, there's room for maneuver here. There's not one unchanging center to the electorate. There are multiple different ways of slicing and dicing it, but that there are real things that people believe and taking certain positions can either draw voters towards you or push them away. You know, that might seem really obvious, but I'm not sure I would have agreed to it in the same way when I started writing the book. Yeah, the sense of sort of these static outside forces sort of just structuring our politics in a way that generates malaise and stasis permanently and that there's nothing anybody can do about it. That is also pervasive across the political spectrum at the very same time that realignment on people's lips as a, as a sort of abstract concept. Yeah. And I hate this dynamic because we go back and forth between thinking not only is another world possible, it's right around the corner to just giving up and saying, like, oh my God, there's something we can do. It's like, I'm just going to go listen to a different set of podcasts now. And that's how I'm going to live in the world. And I just think, so many of the stories here, you know, they don't necessarily have happy endings, but I think that just means that we have to be realistic about the problems that are confronting us, the scope of the challenge. You set your expectations and know that there might not be a happy ending for the story of American democracy, but if there is one, this is the best shot I think we have for getting there. Well, mm. I mean, Tim, I think the question that loomed over your entire book for me and some of what we've just been discussing, get at, has something to do with like how unprecedented is this moment we're in? Have we gone this long in all the kind of you know past periods you covered in the book? Have we gone this long without a new majority emerging? How different does this moment feel? Because you know you can go through all the the history that you do, but like a lot of the kind of questions about you know, how how the pendulum swings, how new majorities are built, how a, a new kind of political regime, to use Stephen Skoranek's term, right, comes into being. They all kind of have pittered out in more recent history, and it feels like we are kind of stuck in this moment that isn't like other moments. Maybe we are in uncharted territory. Oh, I think we're absolutely un in uncharted territory, which in some way, as a historian, I love. You know, there's some people who <laughs> go to the past because they want to explain why the world is the way it is and why nothing can ever change. I love discovering a past that's different than the one that we inhabit, because I think to me, at least implicitly, it holds out the possibility that things could be different in the future. And if you look at the world today and say, I'm not 100% on board with what's going on, that can be a source of hope, right? You know, things could get a lot worse, that is true, but there's also a possibility that things could change for the better. On the other hand, I think that it's useful to keep in mind the collection of pathologies that we're faced with today, even if this combination is new and even if there are some new factors, like listen, social media doesn't put us in a different world by itself, but it is a different phenomenon than early forms of media. Those changes, they do matter. The rise of the primary system, even something, you know, it sounds like a little wonky and small bore, but has really important knock-on effects. Like all of those matter. But looking to see where the particular elements of our conjuncture, the roots that they have in the past, the different combinations that you have and the potential way out. I think that's really useful. And I would say the maybe naive faith at the heart of the book is that I think it's up to us to ask how much of the world that we're living in is of our own making. And if the answer is even a little bit, then I think it's up to us to think about how we can change it for the better. And that means thinking about, in my mind, the both constraints and the opportunities afforded by being part of a democracy. I just want us to do better, man. And not 
being so satisfied just to think that within sort of narrow parameters that we set for ourselves that we're doing our job, but to think of ourselves as being part of a broader community that has a set of responsibilities that come with it, because taking those responsibilities seriously also gives us a chance for power. And again, I'm not promising, obviously, transformation overnight, but this is how I think about socialism too. Like even if we don't get it in our lifetime, probably won't, it's the direction, the name of our desire, the road that we want to go down, steps along there make me really excited. And the more steps that we can take together, the better off we'll be. Well, Tim, I did kind of jump to maybe the biggest question in your book, which I apologize for. (laughs) Just couldn't resist. But maybe, you know, to make it a little more down to earth or practical here, I did want to ask, because I think still for listeners, I want them to get a little more like concrete what we mean here. Like, could you pick an example from the book of like someone who did build a successful majority who was a successful realigner? Like, were there any conditions too in some of these cases that seem to reappear again and again? Like things that seem to happen when a realignment is afoot? Yeah, so sure. Let's go back to Sumner. He's a great example because the majority that he helped build, this antebellum Republican Party, just accomplished what is arguably the single most transformative, like, political achievement in American history with the abolition of slavery. It's it's this in the New Deal, in my mind. Yeah, we're talking about the 13th, the 14th, the 15th Amendment. So it's like, this is a pretty huge fucking yeah. deal. And <laughs> it, interestingly, too, just for my own arguments, um, amendments that end up being ratified not by Democratic consensus, but by the North taking power in the aftermath of the Civil War and saying, the South, like, listen, if you want to get back into the Union, here are the terms of mission. So it's more the 1860 election that sparks everything that comes after, which is still an extraordinary achievement in its own right. So how do we get there? Well, it's important to note that when Sumner is starting his career circa 1840, if you oppose slavery and are in American politics, you generally have two options on your table. One is a position that's associated with abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison, who says that a country founded on slavery, so fundamentally corrupted by this institution, there's no chance. There's no hope. The best thing we can do essentially is for the North to secede and we'll hold up this moral example and eventually the South can catch up, but that this political path is doomed from the start. On the other side, there's someone like Abraham Lincoln, who is opposed to slavery in the 1840s, but is also a dedicated Whig at a time when both parties, the Whigs and the Democrats, have factions in the North and the South, which means that they have to be committed to downplaying the significance of slavery as an issue, because that's something that destroys their coalition. So what Lincoln will say is like, listen, yes, like I oppose slavery. I think it is wrong. But I think that within the boundaries of realistic politics, the best we can do is push for the better than Democrats Whig alternative. But there's no vision of abolishing slavery that comes out of that. It's just, this is the less bad thing. Sumner takes a position between Garrison on one side and Lincoln on the other. And the name of that position is political abolitionism. What he says is that, yes, the current political system, you have Whigs and you have Democrats. Number one, they're pretty narrowly divided by this point. Democrats win most of the time, but it's not a sure thing. And more to the point, they have this potential to be fractured. Both of these North-South coalitions, I can see that they're surviving just by keeping slavery out of the conversation. And I look at where demographics are going. I see that the North is growing faster than the South, and that this opens up the possibility for a free state majority built out of the North. And we can make that majority by putting slavery at the center of the debate. And if we do it, then we have the numbers to get rid of as an institution, or at least to crush the slave power, which is his great nemesis. So it's like slavery is as we destroy, but the slave power is like the stand-in for this elite planter class in the South that he thinks controls not just the government, but essentially all of American life. And he says, like, the purpose of my life, and this is Charles Sumner, he's a Harvard grad, sort of flower of New England society, 
throws himself into politics at a time when it was seen as kind of a low-class profession. He's this model of sort of this committed intellectual with this strong commitment to both, anti, as I said, anti-slavery and anti-racism, a combination that didn't always go together. But this is his overriding ambition, to build a free state majority that will plow through the desiccated husk of the old two-party system and make something new. You describe him at some point as a combination of Jefferson, Burke, and Frederick Douglass. Yeah, which is just gets to sort of the weird temperament where there is the idealistic commitment to a sort of vision of the Declaration of Independence, but also tempered by a bit of New England conservatism that has this Burkean influence with a moral core on questions about race and slavery that makes someone like Frederick Douglass, who will deliver just a beautiful funeral oration for Sumner and who regards Sumner as essentially like the best friend in white America that African-Americans have during his lifetime, like binds those two together in a single cause too. But this is a key point. Where he breaks from Garrison is his belief that you can build this Democratic majority, lowercase d Democratic majority, and that means making compromises on a lot of other issues, saying that slavery is the thing that we will be fighting about, the thing we want to talk about. Therefore, the other stuff that politics had been about up to this point, the bank war, tariffs, internal improvements, go down the list. That requires figuring out ways to push those to the side so that we can bring those to the center, or at least to carefully navigate, because we're going to be breaking apart this old coalition and building something new. Now, sort of the scale right. of that transformation isn't something I can imagine us going through today, but it does mean that when you're thinking about building a coalition, it's not just saying that we need to have the people on our side. It's figuring out who falls in who goes out, and what are the issues that you're going to put at the center of the story. There are some notes that I took on sort of like the inputs into that strategic and political visionary project, building a realignment, building a party. The first thing I wrote down was what you just said, this focusing on one or a few issues. Just some, You have to shift the public's gaze in your chosen direction, and therefore the other things have to recede to some degree. That's the only way you can cut across what are sort of existing coalitions built around a set of issues that serve the interest of the existing distribution of the coalitions, right? You have to shift everyone's gaze to a smaller aperture. But then there's also things like a certain element of populism. Just always, it's like you have to be outsiders taking on some kind of corrupt establishment. So for Sumner, defining his enemy as the slave power, which is this much more capacious thing, as you said, than just the aristocracy in the South. It's something that, that is bigger and that exerts control so far beyond just uh, that sort of local iteration of, of slave power in the South. And then it also involves, like, uh, you know, in related to that sort of the naming of an enemy. And it involves this organizational grunt work, which I keep going back to. You have to build institutions. You have to, you know, at the time, it would be like, you know, create newspapers and magazines and clubs and <laughs> stuff like that. But party building, you know, the actual kind of like mobilization of institutional capacity. And then at the same time, just intense moral clarity, right? You do that kind of political dirty work at the same time that the sort of official articulation of this vision is totally morally clear, coherent, and sort of single entendre. <laughs> and the crazy thing is that's step one, because then step two comes as, like, oh my God, you win an election. What do you do next? 
And then, yes. <laughs> in a sense, that's when the real work begins. But that's where it comes to using power to follow through on the promises that you've made, which, among other things, means building support, drawing voters to your side by delivering for them in their real lives and building institutions that can outlast the ebbs and flows of the political cycle. Because right. no realignment can guarantee that you will have a majority that always wins. You know, there can be the recession that knocks you off balance. There can be sort of the particularly disastrous administration that falls apart for whatever reason. But what you have to do is take the energy from a single campaign and figure out ways to push through lasting reforms, transfer power, and build institutions. So I think this maybe gets to the latter part of the book, because I think there's a sort of tension in your book where the first half is like, here's how it's been done. You know, Martin Van Buren and Jackson did it. Charles Sumner did it with the Republican Party. Mark Hanna, Teddy Roosevelt, and Ruth Hannah McCormick did it with the GOP majority from 1896 to 1930. These are all sort of examples of this thing happening. Then there's this kind of interlude where you sort of uh, do what I thought was just like a delightful read, your kind of a dual narrative of the life of W.B. Du Bois and Walter Lippmann. And then you're describing a condition that seems so much more familiar to us, which is the era of Phyllis Schlafly and the rise of the conservative movement, the new right, and then Barack Obama's attempt to affect his own realignment that undoes the sort of Reagan alignment. And what defines the second half of the book, in contrast to the first half of the book, is that you're talking about how it doesn't quite work anymore. There hasn't been this realignment. There are these, these moments like the March on Washington, which you refer to over and over again as sort of maybe the seeds of what could have been. There's people, of course, who thought that LBJ's Great Society could have been it. Obviously, the Reaganites and Philip Schlafly felt that the conservative majority could be it. But it wasn't completely. And then, as I think Matt and I both want to talk about in detail, Barack Obama's effort <laughs> as the sort of most recent moment where it felt like this is a guy who has all the qualities, who has the vision, and who seems like maybe it'll work this time. But I, I don't want to turn to Obama too quickly. And obviously, we would be remiss as Know Your Enemy if we did not talk about your chapter on Schlafly. I thought that your read of her vision and her biography was slightly different than I think we've been getting from a lot of sort of historians of conservatism and like the the sort of popular depictions of her in that in the show Mrs. America because it was it was much much more identifying the ways in which she was basically trying to do the Trump realignment, but much earlier. <laughs> yeah. So the way that I came to think about Schlafly, and I was someone who, in my head, she was that Mrs. America story of like, oh, Phyllis Schlafly, she's the person who destroys the ERA, the reason why that amendment doesn't pass, and then is just another figure in the Republican mix who supported Trump in 2016. The thing that changed when I started actually reading her stuff, and this was really a summer where I don't know how many people have joined me in the club of like having read the collected works of Phyllis Schlafly, but I really did like, a <laughs> deep dive, and I was just shocked at the continuity. You mean the continuity from her early work to her her supporting Trump in 2016. Exactly. That the Trump 2016 project didn't come out of nowhere, but that she really is a bridge figure from the Republican Party, Robert Taft and Joe McCarthy, to the Republican Party of Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. And that from the beginning, she sees the potential for this 
populist right coalition that's going to take on what she describes as the kingmakers. And in her mind, the kingmakers are sort of this bipartisan cabal that's represented by New Deal liberals on the one hand and Rockefeller Republicans on the other. So like liberals of both parties who are standing in the way of what ordinary Americans would want. And yes, there is a period where she goes along with Reaganite orthodoxy in the 1980s, but she gets off that bus pretty early. So that by the 1990s, she, along with Pat Buchanan, has essentially landed on the core of the sort of Trump before Trump right populist agenda, adding substance on questions like free trade and also adapting to new issues like questions around immigration that are on the table in the 90s in a way that they weren't in the 60s. But the underlying project, the vision of leading this right-wing populist attack, that is there from the start. So with that in mind, you see the campaign against the ERA. She's leaping onto a cause she thinks she can use as a bludgeon to help further just destroy that New Deal coalition and to build something new. But that's just one chapter in this larger story animated by this campaign against the kingmakers. Yeah. I, I start the Schlafly chapter with this appearance that she makes on Firing Line in the 1970s, where they're debating the sort of now forgotten controversy over the Panama Canal. Should the U.S. give it up? Schlafly was on the side of most of the conservative movement saying, like, no, we have to hold on to this for reasons of American power. Buckley was in a break from conservative orthodoxy, happy to see it go. And there's this moment where Schlafly says, well, of course, like the reason why we're having this conversation about the Panama Canal in the first place is that this is a scheme to make more money for David Rockefeller and his cronies on Wall Street. And she spins out the story about sort of the malevolent influence of these elite kingmakers. I think you have to ask the question, cui bono? Who's going to profit? And I think the people who are going to profit are the American banks who have loaned money to Panama. And Buckley is just like looking at her like, what the fuck is going on? Are you seriously suggesting that American bankers worried about their investments in Panama would begin to look after those investments by programming the relinquishment of American sovereignty in the area? Oh, I certainly am, because these well, are the same banks. Bank, bank, bankers may be dumb, but they can't be that dumb. And it reveals this underlying difference, which is captured, among other things, in the fact that Phyllis Schlafly, we know today that she was also, though she denied at the time, an early member of the John Birch Society. And of course, Buckley has gone down in conservative lore, among other things, for he is the person who expelled the Birchers, cast them out of the movement, and defended the legitimacy of the right at this moment when association with fringe theories could have undermined his integrity. But he's inviting Phyllis Schlafly, unknowns to him, former John Birch Society member, onto his show. And what I wanted to do there was show that this element, this sort of paranoid populist fringe streak in the right, it is there. It does not come out of nowhere. It's not a 2016 year invention. On the other hand, that is not a majority of the country. And Schlafly doesn't say a Bercher. She quits. She quits because she's worried that's going to undermine her legitimacy with the wider American public and stop her campaign at coalition building. Because she, in a way, like Sumner 100 years earlier, she is concerned with building a Democratic majority, a lowercase d Democratic majority, in order to push through this transformative change that she thinks is possible. And I think this might put the emphasis a bit differently than a lot of historians of the right, I think, have been doing over the last few years. The shift after 2016 is to say, clearly, the base driving force of this has always been not Buckley, but the Birchers. Political scientists uh, Sam Rosenfeld and Danny Schlossman had the great phrase of bring the fever swamps back in to the story of the American right. I think we have to do that. But 
having done that, I don't want to bend the stick so far in the other direction that we shift almost from legitimizing the right to pathologizing it. It's a much more complicated yep. dance. And I think looking at not just Schlafly in a relationship with Buckley, but even the moves that Schlafly herself, this former Bircher who realizes that John Birchism itself isn't going to get the job done, that gets to a much more satisfying picture of where the right has gone, how it came to be, and where it might go in the future than either just the National Review, Fusionism, American Enterprise Institute story, or the crazy kooks, white supremacist, John Birch Society story. I think you're speaking our language there. Because something Matt and I talk a lot about is this sort of the historiography of the right and our dissatisfactions with like both extreme camps of the interpretation of the 20th century rise of the new right. And there's been like, you know, like two overcorrections. <laughs> right. right. Yes. Like there wasn't the overcorrection of like, oh, my God, we have to take the right seriously. You know, meaning like the right that Buckley built and they were really sophisticated and they created Reagan. And it's like, oh, my God, they went to college. Who knew? And then the overcorrection of the post 2016 era of like those people don't matter at all. It's all about the grassroots mobilization, the fever swamps, the paranoid housewives and et cetera, et cetera. I think we, we, we land in the same place you do, which is that like, let's bend the stick back to the middle somewhere and try to incorporate both of these stories. Cause these stories are happening at the same time. And like you're pointing with Schlafly, it's like, yeah, she's a true believer, but also like her story is one where her first love was foreign policy, right? And nuclear policy. And she was totally an elite, totally just wanted to be an elite policy wonk for Republican politics. Of course, that turned out not to really be possible. And the feminism as a ballast to her new identity created a new path for her into political mobilization, sort of le being leader of political mobilization. But that just also means that, like, she isn't a clean representative of, like, paranoid fever swamp grassroots conservatism because her aspiration was always to be a part of the policy elite. Yeah, to like wield power in order to destroy it, which might sound like a paradox, except that's also where we on the left find ourselves, I think, most of the time. And that in her yep. case, so it's not just I want to join the policymaking elite. Like, I'm sure she would have loved to be Jean Kirkpatrick if the opportunity was offered, but that why she's in the book about realignment, that she had her eye on coalition making and building majorities. And yeah. in this case, when you look at, for instance, her big opportunity to put this into play in the 1970s with the campaign against the ERA, if you watch Mrs. America, you'll see that, yeah, she was more than willing to work with white supremacists. Like if you were a member of the KKK or your husband was a member of the KKK, as long as you don't go around blaring that to reporters, that was fine with her. On the other hand, the thing that you don't see in Mrs. America is that she's also worked with women like Mildred Faye Jefferson, who was the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Med School and like a staunch anti-abortion opponent. And that more complicated picture, I think, is one that we just have to keep in our mind because it gets to how Republicans are navigating these questions, trying to bring the fever swamps in while also maintaining credibility with a wider electorate, being aware that if they want to win power, first they have to win elections. There's also the great moment where you point out that some of the arguments that Schleich Laffley is making against the ERA rhyme with those arguments of old left opponents of the ERA. Like, what's her name? Mary Dublin Kaiserling, who is a figure that I go into in telling the story of interwar American liberalism and sort of the transition from New Deal liberalism to Cold War liberalism. I love all that stuff with her and her husband and sort of that trajectory. And listeners who will read the book, you'll enjoy it too. This fact that there's a rhyming between the anti-ERA sentiments of a sort of older 
economics class focused left, a sort of generation older than the the new left, who sort of see that the ERA from their perspective is like basically just for elite women, you know, professionalizing, entering the workforce women. What about working class women? What does this do for them? That those arguments from the left rhyme with some of the ones that Schlafly is making sort of does suggest already at that moment for Schlafly, the way that she's moving in the direction of this sort of Buchananite class conscious conservatism. Exactly. And one point that really comes through when you look at the way people were talking about this stuff at the time is this idea of a blue collar conservatism doesn't just come into being in 2016, doesn't even just come into being with Pat Buchanan in the 90s, that this is something that at least from the 60s on, you know, post George Wallace, really, people can see the writing on the wall. Oh, this is a coalition that's out there. You know, it's not guaranteed, but there is room here. And if we say the right things, if we take the right positions, make the right arguments, then this is the way that we blow apart the New Deal order. Like step one, get these people who were the backbone of that FDR coalition, bring them onto our side. And there's a lot of old school machine Democrats who are perfectly comfortable with patriarchy under FDR and don't see a need to overturn it at the time, who she's able to bring into the coalition against ERA in the 1970s. So even though she's convinced that we need to destroy the New Deal order, we need to destroy the New Deal coalition, she thinks the only vehicle for that is the Republican Party. When she's campaigning against ERA, she's happy to get Democratic supporters. No, she's like, I want votes against ERA from Democratic legislators in the 1970s so that eventually I can build a majority of Republican voters in the 1980s. Well, Tim, on the Schlafly point, I wanted to point one thing out and then make an observation about the uh, Panama Canal issue. This is what people come to the Know Your Enemy bonus episode for. Yes. (laughs) I kind of think there should be a great book or something on the Panama Canal and the right, because there's the Phyllis Schlafly appearance uh, on Firing Line, uh, where she debated Buckley on this subject. But there's a whole another episode of Firing Line that's like a formal debate on the Panama Canal issue. It's been one of my longtime favorite Firing Line episodes, because whatever treaty you know handed over control of it, on the side of affirming that were Bill Buckley, George Will, and James Burnham. On the no side were Ronald Reagan, Pat Buchanan, and John Sidney McCain, the father, not the, the senator. I just thought that was interesting that Buchanan was in on that and, and took Schlafly's side. But the actual appearance of Schlafly one-on-one with Buckley that you describe in your book, Tim, when I read that, I thought, you know, when people like Schlafly are kind of spouting lies, conspiracy theories, etc., and she's on the same side as Bill. <laughs> they just kind of go along with it, you know. But on something where they disagree, like the Panama Canal, she starts spouting some of this stuff. And he reacts like we react every time yep. she opens her mouth. What makes you think that Torrijos won't just renounce the debt? Well, he might renounce the debt. but well, if he... why doesn't he do that? If all he has to do is renounce the debt, then what on earth are all these figures? What's the meaning of all these figures? Behold, Bill Buckley, the triggered lib. Yeah, he does that sort of overperformed, like wide-eyed, like, are you hearing this? I'm hearing this. <laughs> yeah, Bill, like this is actually bad. And just because they agree with you sometimes, you overlook it most of the time. But I do agree with you, Tim, on your kind of comments on the historiography of the right and maybe some of the multiple overcorrections uh, that have happened over the past few decades. Because it's not very satisfying 
to say, yeah, it's it's kind of a mix, right? The ideas matter in some cases, like the grassroots energy drives a lot of it, but not all of it. Elites matter, the base matters, right? Like it's just not very satisfying to say it's complicated. To me, at least, I feel like there's a little more oomph when you keep in mind majoritarian politics as a tiebreaker, or at least people being aware that this is the court that we ultimately have to appeal to. So arguing that this is what's driving the conversation rather than just a sort of internal focus. I think of the setting sin that historians have to struggle with for ourselves is we're very good at proving whether something happened. We're bad at explaining whether it mattered, right? We can say that this group Mm. was doing this thing, but how much power they had overall significance. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so easy to toggle from the view of history as seen from the offices of National Review to the John Birch-centric story is because there are both archives in each case that you could go to. And according to those stories, like those people are the center of everything. And I say this as someone's like, listen, this is a book that tries to tell big stories through the eyes of individuals. But something I was very aware of is asking, like, why am I choosing these people? And I don't want to present the picture that this like coalitions emerge just as a product of the single persons. They are people who are thrown into these contexts outside their choosing and making do with the resources they have available to them. But that does not mean that they summon these transformations out of the ether. If anything distinguishes them, it's more that they are able to see how things are changing a little bit before other people do, and to put themselves on the right side of that transformation. Which again, it's like looking to the politics for today. It seems like if there's hope for our side, it's going to be in that, right? That you don't make progress by setting yourself fundamentally against the direction of society. You do it by figuring out where the wave is bending and just trying to draw it a little bit more toward you. And that if you do that in the right way, that's where real power can lie. But it's I would just never want to convey the impression that this is just a story of political elites altering the course of history with a flick of their fingers. Well, it's also like you're saying, like historians, they figure out what matters when things happen in the present that seem to suggest that there was an origin somewhere. And so like... I think we probably would continue to think of Pat Buchanan's paleoconservatism as a path not taken if Trump didn't win, you know, and that's <laughs> and now and now we look back and we read what he said and we go, oh, well, that, that that's exactly what happened. Before we turn to what I think we want to close out on, which is Barack Obama, I wanted to read from you mentioned Walter Dean Burnham already, the political scientist. But in 1970, you talk about this uh, paper or whatever he wrote where he sort of describes so prophetically exactly what's about to happen or what has already happened. This will start with your writing and then we'll quote him. But you write, Walter Dean Burnham predicted that, quote, dividing the parties around a, quote, polarized cultural conflict would pit a democratic alliance of elites and the marginalized against a threatened Republican majority, turning quote, and this is Burnham here, peripheral regions against the center, parochials against cosmopolitanism, blue-collar whites against both blacks and affluent liberals, a top-bottom coalition against a, quote, great middle. And that does come to be our reality. That doesn't necessarily redound to the benefit of a conservative democratic majority, but it does describe eerily well what we end up with. You also note that the sort of polarization and and gridlock that that particular kind of set of conditions would generate would result in governing being handed over to an increasingly technocratic executive branch, which is walled off from the public, which is also just exactly what happens. And then you also note that it presages this bond that is, to me, kind of one of the most uncomfortable truths about our political moment now between technocracy 
and a concept of social justice, which I found to be like a very interesting and provocative phrase in your book. But I wanted to put that out there so that as we think about the latter half of the 20th century, you know, and the rise of Obama, that it was foreseeable even in 1970, the stasis we were describing earlier, that the rudiments, the sort of inputs into that reality were already set in motion. And can I add just a little bit extra for points for Burnham as prophet? So he says, you know, what would happen if we get this realignment? He says, it's anyone's guess. But he says, um, quote, one alternative might be a continuing Republican effort to absorb the Wallace following, the George Wallace following, and with it, it's militarism and racist, coupled with a democratic pursuit of a democratic top-down alliance. Whatever the specific configuration, a political realignment organized around these terms would have as large a civil war potential would place as great a strain on political consensus, including perhaps the willingness of losers in the electoral politics arena to accept the outcome of an election as any critical realignment in its history. He <laughs> says, uh, including this could lead to a last-ditch effort to reimpose that formula's dominant position in the political culture by force if necessary. It's, wow. Uh, and, wow. you know, wow. Tim, I'm glad you uh, are giving uh, Walter Dean Burnham, not James Burnham, a shout out because he was kind of a whipping boy in Gary Wills' Nixon Agonistas. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So yeah. I'm, good we're, I'm glad we're giving him some credit here. Well, Lippman gets it pretty good in your book and in uh, Nixon Agonistas. But with Lippman, maybe we can just talk about this briefly because one reason why, and this gets to how we think about conservatism and also setting up Obama. So a problem I had for talking about the New Deal, which is this largest and in lots of ways the strangest majority in American history. So if you look at Sumner and the story about Republicans, you can come up with a kind of, if not quite a formula, then some suggestions for realignment. The annoying thing about the New Deal order from a left perspective is it's the one that I admire the most in lots of ways, but it's also one where it was impossible to find the person, at least for me, impossible to find the person saying, all right, Democrats in 1930, here's how you build the coalition in the future. What you need to do is get uh-huh. all the KKK members and all the black socialists in the same tent. Who was the New Deal's Kevin Phillips? Alabama communists and Alabama KKK members. One coalition. <laughs> yeah, and that this is where FDR will carry, I think it literally is 99% of the vote in South Carolina in 1936, but also in Harlem for the party for the first time, right? You know, that transformation, yes, there are people who see the need for a broad, like, labor-oriented left politics. I mean, our, this is also the promise of socialism and lots ways. But no one, it seemed to me, was saying that the Democratic Party was going to be the vehicle for that. And the socialists don't ever get close. Exactly. And so Democrats, like they stumble into something like this socialist political project, but with both the baggage and the possibility of the Democratic Party apparatus that comes with it, so that I couldn't just tell it, all right, here's the one person doing it. And so what I wanted to do, why I chose Littman and Du Bois, Partly it's because I saw them as they're brilliant in their own ways. There's a lot of biographical similarities. Both went to Harvard, had some of the same teachers, both had this foot in journalism and this foot in the world of ideas. Both had these ideological peregrinations where they are socialists at different points in their career, but also flirt with different varieties of the other politics. But they keep these questions about, among other things, Walter Lippmann, when he starts out as a young socialist working as a secretary for the socialist mayor's connectedy, Lippmann is saying that, okay, what distinguishes us socialists from progressives? It's like the progressives don't believe in class politics, that we have a vision of fundamental transformation that's driven by working class coalition. Progressives want this other thing. So Lippmann, he's attuned to class politics. Du Bois always, of course, attentive to questions of race, but they'll also get both of them have these deep technocratic strains in their work than in their thought, but also these democratic impulses too. easy to 
overlook that in Lippmann's case or to, in a sense, miss a technocratic style of Du Bois. But so you're telling yes. the story yes. about the evolution of American liberalism from the progressive era where you sort of have this progressive, we have a vision of reform without class politics, against the socialist politics, to liberalism stumbling into class politics in a sense in the New Deal years and then right. drifting away from it by the 1960s, something that Walter Lippmann will be quite happy with. So it tells that story, it gets the sort of conflicted nature of the New Deal consensus, but it also points to how Republicans will be able to build a populist right by saying our enemy is the party of Walter Lippmann and W.B. Du Bois. It's Harlem and Harvard. Right. It's these, right. this top brat, top down alliance against the middle. And with all of that in mind, you also then get to say, in a sense, tell the story of who are figures in American history post Du Bois and Burnham who thought as acutely about race as Du Bois and who are as much a master of the American establishment as Walter Lippmann. Well, Barack Obama, I think more so than any other. Yeah, that's so well said. The fact that with the New Deal, you have to have people sort of sleepwalking into it instead of this kind of like visionary, strategic and political and moral vision, because that's actually how it happened. And so then these these kind of divided against themselves, kind of erratic political characters like W.B. Du Bois and Walter Lippmann become necessary for your story. I, I get that now. Actually, I didn't get that when I was reading it. One thing I wanted to say was, I would say steadily over the last couple of years, I think I've become more aware of the kind of fragility of the New Deal coalition, right? Like FDR is the last touchstone we really have in some ways, right? When Biden came into office and seemed to be aggressively pursuing certain policies, like FDR was the touchstone, right? And we think of who might be the Republican FDR. So that makes that coalition itself kind of interesting. But I was really struck by a comment you made earlier that actually the kind of right-wing conservative movement capture of the GOP might have forestalled a certain realignment. I think you point out in your book that we can look at Reagan winning 49 states, right, in 1984, but Democrats picking up seats in Congress, right? Those kinds of kind of almost an abortive realignment that never quite took hold, Bill Clinton kind of interrupts it. And so the kind of backdrop to Obama is both, I think, you know, the weirdness of the New Deal coalition and then the kind of abortive realignment around Reagan that never, never quite came together. And, you know, it's interesting that even if you kind of grant Reagan a certain realignment place of prominence, if you want to credit that as a realignment of some kind, it is interesting that, you know, he was elected in 1980 and Obama's elected in 2008. So there's the 30-year interval, I think, that Burnham might have put forward. And so it's very interesting that we have kind of the Reagan revolution that wasn't quite a revolution, and we have the Obama election that wasn't quite a revolution either, even though in a lot of cases we want to try to fit them into that. What was your sense of the conditions that Obama stepped into? How do you kind of think about what Obama inherited? Because it's very strange. So this, in a sense, brings us back to we were talking earlier about where the book started and where it ended up. Another way of thinking about the change for me is that when I'm writing the book proposal in 2016, 2017, you're not saying it on every page, but the question on everyone's mind is, okay, how does this get to Trump? You know, why does Trump succeed? You're like, yes, he doesn't win the popular vote, but he got his electoral college. Like, he won the Republican nomination. How does this happen? How does he win? How does he get what he wanted? And the question that I ended up thinking was a lot more compelling to me and maybe more important in its own way was not how did Trump succeed, but why did Obama fail? And why I came to that realization was that 
going through his stuff, including what my favorite research find of the book was stumbling across this massive manuscript that he wrote when he was in law school with his um, best friend at Harvard at the time, a former economics professor named Robert Fisher, this lengthy manifesto that's an assessment of American politics and a guide for transforming it. And the political electoral core of it is essentially rebuilding that New Deal coalition by putting forward a bold set of universal economic programs that he says are will be capable of bringing back blue-collar white voters into the Democratic Party. And this is a tradition that has strong roots on the Democratic Socialist left that Obama was getting it kind of in the first instance from the great uh, sociologist William Julius Wilson, who in turn in his writing was explicitly crediting it to Bayard Rustin, who was one of the visionary architects of the civil rights movement, the guy who organizes March on Washington. Also noteworthy that he was drinking buddies with Michael Harrington, founder of the DSA. And that there is a, a story of sort of left politics and visions of left coalition uh, forming along these lines. Something that I didn't mention in the book, because it's a little inside baseball, but Mike Harrington was ahead of the Realigners Caucus uh, within the Socialist Party in the early 1960s. So there is a more sort of narrowly focused left history that you could tell here as well. But seeing that Barack Obama come out of a tradition that like there is a focus on electoral realignment as a project that was striking and then that it's one with this sort of specifically left heritage that it comes out of this document where you just see obama at the doorstep of his political career he's already according to garrow telling some people that he might have his eye in the white house one day or at least that's the ultimate ambition this is a project that he had in mind that i want to bring back this new deal coalition not just to bring back the politics of the 1930s but in a sense to move past the impasse that he says multiple times, like the tragedy of the 1960s, like it begins with such hope and it leads to just the disastrous politics I see all around me. He has sort of a more left critique of this at the start of his career, a more centrist critique by the time he's running out of state of hope and running for president. But still, there's a sense almost in which I will move past the 60s by transcending it. I will take the best of it. I will overcome it. And this party that collapsed on its own contradictions, that did not feel a way to be both the party of like John Lewis and the CIO in the 1930s and John Lewis and the civil rights movement in the 1960s, you know, those yep, two John yep, Lewises, yep. I will be the person who can hold it all together and redeem this unfulfilled promise. Like this, the tragedy of the 1960s isn't that it happened, but that there was this moment when it seemed like we might be able to overcome our contradictions and go to something better. This is a time that we can do it. And I'm the person who by 2008 might be able to do it. And knowing that this is a project he had in his mind, then it sets you up for, well, you know, there was a realignment when Barack Obama was president, or at least there was a stark transformation. It's just that it ended in 2016 with Democrats winning like top 10% of income voters for the first time in the modern party's history at the same time that you had this just massive break of white working class voters to Trump in 2016, which has then set the stage for like a smaller but significant um, increase of sort of this class dealignment and, and Republicans doing better with Hispanic voters and even to a small extent, like especially with African-American men. So it's, it's, it's really the reason Obama becomes the essential question is because he set out to do one thing. He exacerbated exactly the conditions that he wanted to oppose. Yes. And like knowing that this was his starting point, when you know that this is what he was saying and the privacy of just like him, his best friend, his vision for changing the world gives you a kind of measuring stick. It lets you judge the rest of what came after. You can see what he holds on to, what he puts to the side. But I think that there's so much of that core vision that sticks around and then seeing how exactly the electorate moves in a different direction, the Democratic Party moves and American liberalism changes too. 
I'm going to read just a, a bit from the book where you describe the attributes of the realigner. You, you do a really compelling sort of description of how Obama has all the things, both in mind and in his person, in his personality, in his political temperament, uh, to be the figure that he wants to be, right? So you write, he operated the democratic machine with a skill Martin Van Buren would have envied and played the part of the idealist like a latter-day Charles Sumner, bringing audiences to tears by urging Americans to live up to their founding career. He reckoned with the power of the corporate order that Mark Hanna embodied in his day and the administrative state that Theodore Roosevelt envisioned in his. He was as perceptive an interpreter of race and American democracy as W.B. Du Bois and as skilled a navigator of the American establishment as Walter Lippmann. And he put all these things to the purpose of undoing Phyllis Schlafly's life's work by depolarizing the electorate and creating a new democratic majority. He is the one we were waiting for, you know, in your books, narrative, in a way. And so, as you've already been saying, what happens instead is maybe the most important question. And this comes from both an old millennial who's therefore old enough to have been just enraptured by the Obama 2008 campaign. This is in some, it's a very, very personal story for me. Like, I believe so me much too. of this. Me too. But also, like, old enough now to have a five year old son who's obsessed with Star Wars and wants nothing more to do than to watch Revenge of the Sith every day. So, ahead of my mind, um, like, God, Barack Obama, you're supposed to bring balance to the force, not leave it in ashes. Like, yes. <laughs> so, this, yeah, like, Barack Obama as the Anakin Skywalker, the American left, is one way of summarizing that story. I'm so glad we got you to say that. But then it gets to the question of, like, okay, how do we get here? I feel like so much of the a discussion about what went wrong for the Obama years. You know, there's some people who say that nothing went wrong. It was just like the fact of electing a black president was enough to like trigger this response from the right. So you elect Barack Obama and then more or less inevitably you get to Trump. Now, clearly the racialization of American politics in the age of Obama has a lot to do with backlash, but I don't think that's the entirety of the story. One thing I wanted to do was think more about that second term of the Obama administration when I think that you see more of a change in the Democratic Party and American liberalism, partly fueled by this sense that because of this Obama coalition, which is described as this union of, sort of racial minorities, the young and the well-educated, like especially women. The Ascendant Coalition. <laughs> exactly, the Coalition of the Ascendant, that this was, we now know, both an inaccurate description of the coalition that Obama wanted, or at least what he wanted when he started based on his own words, also an inaccurate description of the coalition that actually reelected him, which if you go, people like Nate Cohen at the New York Times have pointed out, if you look at the data, you cannot underestimate the significance for Obama of support from working class voters in the North and Midwest, especially. Like the South is a different story. The South is a disaster. I really feel like one of the takeaways from the Obama material in your book for me was something like we took all the wrong lessons away from him beating Mitt Romney in 2012. Yep, yep, yep. And I think with American liberals, a camp that we all have, I think, conflicted feelings toward, like some sympathy, some skepticism. I love my mom, Tim. I, I love my mom, too. And for me, the book is shaped by the fact that she is a diehard Trump supporter. I feel you, buddy. I feel you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the back camp on this stuff. My mom's like, why does Stacey Abrams keep losing? What's wrong with America? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, mom, she's a bad candidate. I don't know what to tell you. Why did you give her so much money? Can I have that money instead? <laughs> so uh, liberals, we agree with them on so many questions of sort of fundamental values. But you always have a question of what you're prioritizing at any given moment. If you have democracy, when you have social justice, when you have visions back on perform, it's sort of a menu that you can pick and choose from, but it's hard to have a set of like what your criteria should be. And I think you can see in retrospect a way in which to put it in sort of the cultural vocabulary of 2016, you end up with this uh, situation where 
the sort of J.D. Vance hillbilly elegy movement on one side and the Lin-Manuel Miranda Hamilton story on the other, they both end up as kind of like two sides of this pincer movement, then it forces a question about what you're prioritizing, what coalitions are emerging, and what you do in order to accomplish those sort of ends of realignment, those ends of political transformation that Obama had in his mind at the start. And I think a kind of tragedy in retrospect is that it seemed for a time like we could get everything that we wanted. And this gets to me saying, like, I came into this book saying, like, ah, Trump proves that the boundaries of American politics are wider than we ever imagined. In some ways, they were a lot narrower than we thought in 2016. And that doesn't mean that change is impossible. I still believe that it is. But it means that the strategy, the tactics, sort of all those elements of building a majority, I ended up believing that we had to take those more seriously than we did at the time, because we thought that the story was already over for us. You know, what's interesting, Tim, you described it as Obama's failure. Uh, that's true in some ways, I agree. But also I was thinking, this is one of my hobby horses, is that Trump was never popular, right? He's never won more votes than his opponent in a general election, right? He won 3 million fewer votes than Hillary. So it, it is a failure in some ways, but I guess I'm just kind of leaning into the like, we're in this moment that's very unprecedented or where it's very hard to perceive what could emerge because it's like even, yeah, like the guy that you said made you think for at least a spell of time, right, that like our political possibilities were enlarged is actually a guy who won millions fewer votes than his opponent. The outcome of it all was just so ambiguous and, and even like the rebuke to Obama, Trump took the form of a minoritarian movement. But what we do have, though, and, so, and this is uh, like point taken that this is not as if Obama ended up delivering a realignment majority to the other side. The more moderated version would be that he wasn't able to break out of this stasis that he thought was like crumbling and that he could build something uh, new out of. So we're stuck in this cycle. And what it seems to me is that sort of a story of American politics over the last few years is of people continuing to hope that some transformative majority is around the corner and then it not coming. So that after Trump 2016, Republicans are saying like, okay, sorry, we can, yes, this was a loss of popular vote this time, but we can become our own party of the working class and build this new coalition. There are worker parties now. <laughs> yeah. And the Democrats, they have this rejoinder in 2020 saying like, no, like Biden's going to win. It's going to be this transformation. And instead you get a, well, in 2018, a big but not enormous Democratic victory in the midterms with some surprisingly strong performance for Republicans in key races. Then in 2020, against expectations of a massive Democratic victory, which really was supposed to deliver, if you go back to the time. I mean, remember earlier in the night, we were all like, oh, mm -hmm. shit. Mm -hmm. But what's real, what's striking is it wasn't just that Biden was going to win because Trump was unpopular. But I think throughout the Trump era, there was an assumption that this was an illegitimate victory and that really there was this multiracial majority. It didn't quite come through in 2016, but 2020 was going to be the reckoning. And what happened there was it wasn't just a defeat for Biden, but it raised some really important questions about the arrival of that multiracial majority itself, which then led Republicans to think like, oh, even though we lost, like I can see how we can put something together. 2022, that's going to be the agent of change. That's going to be the big delivery. And instead, it turns out, no, it's just another case of a failed realignment. Yes. And you just get like a, <laughs> a series of narrow victories. So everyone is saying that transformation is around the corner and it just keeps being you just have these squeaks that frustrate everyone. And, and in particular, Tim, the 2022 midterms, you know, one of the things that 
in the weeks after Democrats did better than expected, the no red wave, which we were promised by certain pollsters, one of the things that became clear to me was that in a strange way, it was a persuasion election. But what ended up happening was, you know, there was like 10% of Republicans who were just not going to vote for lunatics like Doug Mastriano or someone like Blake Masters, whose ad seemed like geared toward school shooters, you know, like what what happened was just a rejection of the like most lunatic fringe base on the right. And so, you know, people like Fetterman over Oz in Pennsylvania or, you know, Mark Kelly over Masters in Arizona, it really was them winning over a genuine number of Republican voters or independents yeah. who lean Republican. And, and it, it's just kind of funny because it's like, even in this midterm, which was a big deal and was like different than expected, so we're all trying to make sense of it. If we're thinking about it through the kind of lens of realignment in your book, it's kind of this, again, unsatisfying episode of, okay, so like a small number of Republicans voted for Democrats in these midterms because they didn't want to vote for absolute lunatics. Where does that leave us? Yeah, And this gets to another point that I think is common in broad lefty circles. If we agree that we want to do something about class dealignment, if we want to help strengthen sort of left presence, working class presence, rebuild that alliance, you can move from saying like we want to build a working class majority to saying that only a working class majority can win. And it seems to me that 2022 is a case where, no, it turns out that there are lots of different ways, or at least a number of different ways at any given time that you can build a majority. Democrats build in some key races, majorities out of not the working class alliance, but by leaning into the Democratic coalition of sort of the resistance, basically. And of say yeah. this combination, not of we're going to raise the minimum wage, we're going to like take on the 1%, but saying that like democracy's on the line and Roe v. Wade has just been overturned, that's a disaster. And yeah. the sort of pro-democracy, pro-choice coalition with like class politics in there, but coming later in the day, you know, there are a lot of broad class sympathetic leftist who you kind of at least it seemed to me as if we're not hoping that democrats would get a reckoning but thought that if democrats lost that they would take a valuable lesson about the necessity of emphasizing class politics and instead what the 22 showed is like no you can win with this different coalition but then that raises the question of like okay what is the type of policy what's the type of politics that that coalition gives you and i think being aware yeah. that these are choices that we're making not good and that the coalition that's defending democracy above all else maybe it wins elections but it's going to do different things in power when you are building that liz cheney to liz warren alliance <laughs> than when you are pushing against class alignment. liz squared the coalition of the lizes okay okay i find this very interesting there's two things I want to say. One is that I totally agree. I was having a drink with my friend, my very smart friend, John Thomason last night. And he was saying that one of his hot takes was that like the actual strength of the Democratic Party as a party is underrated, generally speaking. And I think that's really true. I mean, certainly true for the left. Yeah. If you look globally, like the collapse of social Democratic parties around much of the world over the last generation. Well, yeah. The Democrats are fucking punching so far above the historical moment they're supposed to be in absolute disarray, and they're not. And in fact, when you think about 2016 and 2020, 2016, Hillary Clinton wins the nomination. She loses the general. But the idea that like the candidate who is the most purely representative of the institutional identity of the party wins 
the nomination is a weird thing, right? Because usually the outsider wins, like especially in this moment. She's not supposed to win, but she wins. And then in 2020, Biden wins. Like <laughs> the, 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 the purest representation of the, of the institutional internal identity of the party. From two decades ago. <laughs> yeah, and in, and in fact, now it's like the party its identity is actually invested in this kind of, we are the insiders. We are the responsible. We're the adults in the room. We like the FBI. <laughs> we like yeah. the Department of Justice. Like the Democratic base, significant elements of them vote for the idea of like, whoever's the most party, the most inside. And, but, and this is, a, it's like the flip side of the new right that has, seems to have its target as it were audience to be like school shooters, right? But it's like, right, we will be the most transgressive, the most rebellious, the most regretting, the most of outsiders. I think that's an extraordinary thing about the Democratic Party that actually must be faced for anybody who wants to change our politics right now. I don't, I don't think it's like I think it speaks well of the organizational capacity of some people who are involved in, in Democratic <laughs> politics at the highest levels. Like good for them. They really like they nailed it. How did they do this? Yeah. Like why has the party that has way more working class and minority people in it been capable of presenting itself as the insiders of the insiders. And that's actually like a compelling part of their identity. That's insane. Yeah. It's wild. You know, they, it's a strong party. Yeah, stronger than I thought in the Trump era, too, which is another point that ends up inflecting it. We all thought it was a paper tiger. We all did. This is the paradox of the left, right? The Democratic Party sucks, but they kick our ass every primary, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> come on. Uh, something, yeah. some part yeah. of that equation isn't quite right. I did have a, another question for you, Tim. Maybe this will help us resolve some of the Barack Obama material. At one point, you describe Obama as kind of believing that you had to kind of like depolarize certain questions to then be able to like move forward. And I thought it was really interesting that like this this man who you portray as, you know, kind of self-consciously, again, for, for many years, thinking about what it would mean to realign American politics, thinking in terms of depolarization and kind of stepping back to kind of say this is a false choice versus kind of repolarizing issues around a different terrain. And, you know, maybe this is a question about how Obama pursued the realignment he had envisioned since his youngest years and kind of what you thought worked and what you thought didn't work. There is an essay to be written out there on this term polarization polarizers yes, where it totally. comes from because i was teaching a course at gw last semester on barack obama's america where the conceit was all right we'll read some obama and we'll also put him in conversation with like other events going on this period read some other primary sources and we had one week uh was on harold washington first black mayor of chicago he's there when obama arrives a major important figure and a great thing you could do i encourage anyone in your audience washington he's an amazing speaker you can see him in a bunch of youtube clips but you can also go online and find essentially every speech he gave as mayor of chicago like all of the PDFs are available. And there's a speech he gives, I think it's to, I think it's an address to the Harvard Institute for Politics, maybe in 1985, where he's talking about the sort of state of American politics. And there's some discussion about TV and cable, Democratic Party, lots of stuff. There's a moment where he says, you know, there's this dangerous thing out there. There are these polarizers. They're doing something new in American politics. They're not like the conservatives. They're not the Republicans that we used to know. And they believe in fostering the sort of racial division, but also cultural division. They're using it for their own ends and they're tearing apart the old Democratic Party in the process. And it's like that word polarization, that's the thing he fixes on. And if you go back and read Dreams from My Father, 
there's this initial discussion where Obama, he's recreating this conversation he has with the guy who brings him over to Chicago for community organizing in the first place. And they're saying like, oh, what's Chicago like? What's going on there? And he says like, it's an intensely divided city. It's polarized, but polarization can be good for the people in charge, either side. And there's a sense, it's like through line that among other things for Obama, there's a legacy of Alinsky, this Alinsky, intellectual father of community organizing. He has this line that, Power comes in two flavors, organized money and organized people. And if you're going to wield power for the left, it comes, you're not going to get the money part of the story. So you better organize the people as well as you can. And Obama, there's a sense he's trying to bring that Alinskyite vision squarely into politics by batting against this like new force of polarizers, which he sees essentially as like, all right, if this polarization is what tore the New Deal coalition to shreds in the 1960s, then the only option we have is to defeat it. Now, what's going to change by 2012 is that all of a sudden, in the wake of the election, this talk about the coalition and the ascendant, it's going to seem that, like, no, leaning into polarization, that's how we can build a new majority. And because we're progressive and, like, well-intentioned and good, we're going to deliver on the economic stuff as well, but we no longer have to make these compromises. We no longer have to like, dance this dance. We can just move beyond into this cleaner politics. We don't have to make those choices anymore. And that's where 2016 and what comes after, even though it's, like, not that Trump wins, but that when the new transform majority keeps failing to arrive, it forces us to address a different set of questions. But understanding why the first black president would be preoccupied with this question about polarization, so much so that he rises to national and then global fame with a speech saying that there's no red America, no blue America. Right. That is not an accident. That is the mm -hmm. working through of a conscious strategy that had been in his mind for more than a decade at that point. Totally agree. That's so well said. One of the things that I think sort of see in American politics in my adult life is that like the Democrats keep <laughs> Matt's going to laugh because of this metaphor. They keep getting over their skis <laughs> in the like the ascendant majority, the majority minority. It's about to happen. It's about to happen. It's a it, we're, it's always around the corner. It's about to come together. And we can stop doing this careful, clear-eyed, you know, and sometimes Machiavellian coalition building work that your book is sort of about because this ascendant coalition actually just shares all of our values and it it leaves all of the complicated and difficult questions behind. We can just do what we've already been doing because that, that coalition is right around the corner over and over again. And it doesn't come. So the same thing keeps hitting the prospects for a social democratic majority in the face, which is like, what do we do about all these white people? What do we, you know, like over and over and over again, they're like, it's still the case that like there's a bunch of white workers. We, what are we going to do about them? And Obama, this is no longer like a, 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 like a particularly hot or cute take anymore. But like Obama 2008 was such a carefully crafted populist campaign that I think that like, even as so many people have gone back to it to look at what he did and how he spoke to different coalitions and how he managed to win the people that he did, including all these white workers, I think it's it's still underexamined. <laughs> like it's still the case that like we should we should go back to it because he knew that like as much as like there were people gassing him up and they would gas him up even more and they would gas him up so much by the end of his presidency that he had forgotten these lessons that he used to know. You need to make the connection as you write in the book between Wisconsin Steel, the closed factory, and... Alkel Gardens, public housing project in Chicago, yeah. You have to somehow make a connection between these exploited people and these exploited people. And that was the sort of, like, vision of his campaign at its best that he tried to do, 
And to a, at this moment, looking back, astronomically successful degree managed to do as a political articulation, as like a political campaign prospect. Not that the, that it would mean that there was like a set of policies you could implement to maintain that coalition, as we've talked about before. Like it is, a realignment is not just about winning, it's about being able to serve everybody so that the realignment is enduring. It didn't happen, obviously. Yeah. And that was sort of the great argument of the sort of Obama 1991 version of this case, which is not his invention, has deep roots. But so what he believes is that it's like saying, listen, I'm not calling for this remaking the New Deal coalition because I want Democrats to win, although I do. I'm saying that it has to serve a broader purpose. And why I left community organizing, why I want to go into politics is that I think that if I'm going to bring change to the people I was working with in Chicago, overwhelmingly black, overwhelmingly poor, on the wrong side of every division you could be in American life, the only way we'll do it is with allies by building building this majority coalition that can push through transformative change. Yeah, meaning that they would see themselves as part of the same system and structure of exploitation that the out-of-work and cancer-ridden white people who live around the factory, you know. And that that coalition, this is something I was, again, for this Obama class, I was rereading The Promised Land, the memoir, and what struck me is that he still, even now, when he talks not just about sort of the existence of the sectoral coalition, but how it felt, like he gets lyrical, emotional, more so than at any other time in the book, just he sees that coalition, that work of binding people together, creating this multiracial working class coalition as it's like almost like a beautiful thing, as an end in itself that serves a moral function. So much of that book is dreary and boring and disappointing. But when he talks about what it was like to build that coalition, what it felt like to be part of it, yes, he's the leader, but he also feels he's part of it. That's when he comes alive. And it's so moving at the time. And then to think, you run into the other side of it, where in some sense, he has the most successful expression that possible, where he becomes the first black president of the United States, win two, wins two terms, that's extraordinary. But you go back to the South Side of Chicago today, and the transformative change, there's this heartbreaking Washington Post piece that came out right before he left office in 2017, where the reporter William Wan goes back to Obama's old stomping grounds in Chicago, and he sees these people, they're still feel like that they're on the wrong side of every divide in American life. And he says they're so proud of Barack Obama, but nothing has changed for them in any fundamental way. And the disappointment of that is heart-wrenching for me. But I don't think that means we give up. I think that means we understand. I feel like I understand what he's trying to do for the first time after going through this process. And with that in mind, this is the only shot that we have of doing better. Yeah, it's hard to conceive of a political figure in our life today that thought about the questions you raise in your book as seriously as Barack Obama. Or who is as as capable of answering them. And that's what the black box for me is the second term. Like, I do not know what was going on when he's watching this fall apart. And as the New York Times was reporting at the time, while Trump is on the rise, everything, the wheels are coming off the bus. He's having these extended late night dinners with this insane cross-section of the blue America elite, you know, assorted Silicon Valley overlords and hedge fund capitalists alongside Tony Morris and Eva Longoria and Malcolm Gladwell. Like, I do not know what was going on there, but it is so frustrating to see. It's, it's also interesting, Tim, you know, one of the things I thought about in terms of the structure of your book is how the relationship between white America and black America factored into the, the possibilities for realignment, right? And it, it's very interesting that Barack Obama, our first black president, like comes into office just as in some ways, like the Hispanic question, like the Latino vote, like throws this kind of wrench into the kind of bifocal American black-white problem that existed for so long. And and it's it's kind of interesting to me that in terms of these coalitions and, and questions about realignment, the Latino vote seems so up in the air 
right? And more capable of like leaning Republican maybe than black Americans for sure. And this is where if you look at history with what I call this sort of real liners perspective, I, what I say is like building together majority. It's not as if you have this sort of preset formula at any given time. It's like you're putting together a puzzle where the shapes are constantly changing. With that real liners perspective in mind, I think it encourages you to take a slightly different perspective than where a lot of left conversation went in the late Obama into Trump years, which was really just trying to impose the story of Barack Obama is exclusively of like white backlash against the black president, the like beginning, end of story, that's what's going on here. And you can see just extraordinarily powerful expressions of this, like the 1619 Project at its best, putting the black experience at the center of American history that yields extraordinary insights. I wouldn't deny that for a second. But you can have something be an essential part of history without having it be the always and everywhere explanation of everything. And I think that when historians of the future look at this 2015 to 2020 moment, it might be a case where they will ask why so many American liberals became fixated exclusively on this sort of black-white binary at the same time that the country's demographics are undergoing a much deeper and stranger shift than what that story allowed for. And keeping that sort of realignment perspective in mind where it's constantly about like, all right, this group is on the other side today. How can I get them on my side tomorrow? Who am I going to lose if I reach out to them? How is everything shifting? What's different next? I think that's both a more useful perspective politically, but I also think it has a lot more value as just sort of a lens for understanding history generally, to the extent that it pushes you against a sort of like simple monocausal explanations, whether it is of like, oh, it always comes down to class, or oh, it always comes down to race, or oh, it always comes down to some just abiding liberal consensus. It's never that neat. But I think that with this perspective of how things change and this eye on the question of democratic majoritarian politics, that it lets it be, again, a little bit more than just a story of like, it's complicated, things are changing all the time. But Tim, I think one of the really important kind of aspects of your book is to kind of get people on the left to think genuinely politically. And I think that's something that gets lost mm, mm, mm. or th that I've noticed gets lost in conversations because I think on the left, there can be a tendency to either kind of collapse everything into economics or ethics, right? Like this is right. What's wrong with you for not already agreeing? Yes, exactly. There's a real sense in which thinking politically means thinking hopefully, about the kinds of things you might be able to piece together, given the materials in front of you. And it's, it's kind of less a way of thinking that, again, closes down possibilities, but it's, it's always thinking about, like, what could we do here? And I think that's the, one of the really loveliest parts of your book, because I think that's kind of a temptation for the left to forsake that insight. For anyone in politics, I just think yes. the overwhelming mm -hmm. incentive is to caricature the other side, to do these bad faith interpretations. I mean, something I love about Near Enemy, that you guys are committed to actually understanding what's going on. And this is, again, a message for my fellow lefties and liberals who come out of these college-educated circles and think that we're so damn smart. Well, if we're so damn smart and we believe in empathy, then let's try and actually understand what people are saying. And it is just like a constant banging my head against the wall, like not so much with historians who I generally I think we do a pretty good job of this, but watching even how sort of a lot of otherwise smart people on the left, when they talk to talk about the right today, among other things, I don't know if you guys get as frustrated about this as I do, but I feel like it's oftentimes it slips into these absurd caricatures that it comes from a good place morally where you're defending causes that I agree with as well, but you get so ham-fisted in your interpretation of what you're fighting against that you ruin the ability to do a good job of actually coming up with a compelling defense because you're just taking on strong. It just, it happens all the time and it drives me nuts. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Yeah, I do. That was such a great conversation. In some ways, so much more capacious and 
imaginative than I even <laughs> hoped. It was so much fun. No, this was the best conversation I've had about the book so far, guys. It was really, really fantastic. I would hope so, Tim. <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you, Tim. Uh, your book really is like thought-inducing in the very best sense. So one more time, Tim. The name is Realigners, Partisan Hacks, Political Visionaries, and the Struggle to Rule American Democracy. And it is available wherever fine, hopefully not totally hegemonic booksellers uh, out there in the market. Everywhere but Amazon. Yeah, maybe there too. Maybe there too. <laughs> well, if you desperately need it tomorrow. You can order your spare copy from Amazon and the better one from somewhere else. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Tim. This was so fun. Thank you, guys. All right. Catch you next time, listeners. Thank you.